0: Good morning once again. The time is now 9 a.m. on this Wednesday, the 30th of September. And welcome to Community Pulse, your locally produced program on the coronavirus pandemic here in mid-Missouri. We broadcast to you live here from the downtown KOPN studios Mondays and Wednesdays from 9 a.m. to 9.30 a.m. And the episodes are then uploaded to our website, our Facebook feed, and you can also find them on Spotify and Apple Podcasts anytime you like. We're so very pleased this morning to have with us, um, as some of our listeners may know, we are now in the seventh month of doing Community Pulse, and we have both hosts this morning, uh, Ginny Chadwick, the public health advocate, and Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, uh, local family physician and host of Your Health Matters. seems to me it's been quite a long time since we've had both of our lovely hosts who give their time to this station together. Uh, Ladies, good morning to you both.
1: Thank you, Peter. Good
2: morning, Ginny. Good morning. Actually, we were on a Monday together, too, but there was so much to talk about that we didn't get through that I wanted to do it again. Um, and, Elizabeth, so thank you for joining me. So oh, you're so welcome. I wasn't going to start with the um, debate last night, but listening to Democracy Now!, I think that it just has to be brought up. Um, you know, last night in the debate, Trump um, stated his skepticism yet again for wearing masks saying that health officials have said that they might not work. And in fact, he says Anthony Fauci said that they might not work. Um, He said that he wears them when he needs to, which we know that he rarely wears them in public. Um, So the science is there, folks. I think you and I all know it. I will try not to bring up the debate after this, but um, solid science on wearing masks. He also stated that that his rallies are having no negative effect on the public health spread of the COVID-19 um, or the coronavirus. And we know based on documentation that there was an outbreak based on his Tulsa, Oklahoma rally. So bringing large people together in masses is going to have an impact on spreading the virus. Now so, Absolutely. Missouri, yeah, and I also want
1: to say that I am, you know, continuing to hear discussion among people I know and on social media about, you know, um, there seems to be this thing of like, oh, masks are either terrible or they're perfect, and the truth is they're somewhere in between. Do masks right. prevent every transmission? No, they don't. Um, the PPE that healthcare providers wear in hospitals seems to be very effective, um, but, and most of the healthcare practitioners that are getting this, seem to be getting it from either in their households or in the community or when they are interacting with their colleagues um, during break times when they take their masks off so they can eat and drink. Um, we don't know any of that for sure. Again, like we say repeatedly here, we cannot see the moment when the virus jumps from one nose to the next. And how about these you know, cloth homemade face masks? Are they, um, are they working? They seem to be working really well. Um, And so then people are like, well, why would you take a flu shot if the masks are working? We're all wearing masks. Well, because they aren't perfect. They, you know, it's this interesting thing of if we admit that a thing isn't perfect, then suddenly it's terrible. And I think that we have to just live in the messy middle that they seem to be working really well and not perfectly. So in the same way that Seat belts work really well, but I'm also glad that my car has many other safety developments like um, airbags and engineering, so that the engine, if I'm in a front-end crash, drops to the ground rather than into my lap. So it's uh, and I still use headlights and I make, use my turn signal and you know follow the speed limit and don't drive drunk. And it's not like none of those things work; it's that they all work better together. So. Um, I think that continuing to argue about masks feels like tiring and um, I don't know, pedantic, but um, people, some people still are having big feelings about it. So I, you know,
2: did you yeah, have the ahead. journal article that came out this week that says that, um, you know, masks might reduce the viral load and therefore might be helping us to create immunity. Right. So we're having more right. um, asymptomatic cases of, of COVID-19 and helping to build the immunity, so that that's a very interesting perspective, and I think we'll talk a little bit more yeah. later about building right. immunity and herd immunity. But looking at the numbers, we had 1,693 cases of COVID-19 in the state of Missouri. So, you know, we've broached. Um, 2,000 on a high day, but, you know, we're still averaging now over 1,500 cases per day. And, you know, still interestingly, our case increase is happening in our rural uh, counties. So, Pulaski County, for those of you who don't know, it's about three counties south of us do directly. And then uh, Shelby County, again, they about three, two, three counties directly north of us. Um, they are both seeing the highest increases in cases right now. So, Again, spreading in our rural communities, but that does not keep it from spreading here. Um, right. COVID deaths, This um, yesterday we had 35 Missourians die of COVID-19, and our positivity rate is still well above the World Health Organization's stated level for safe um, testing, and that is at 12.4%. Any thoughts about those numbers, Elizabeth, as I...
1: Well, I also wanted to know that, um, as you pointed out to me last night, that um, we now have 12 deaths in Boone County, so there were three more deaths added. Um, and, and there is a delay in deaths being added to county counts. And that is because it takes some time for the death certificate to be completed, for people to be, you know, for the counters to make sure that that was actually a case from a particular county. So it's not where the death happens; it's where that person lived. And there can sometimes be some uh, disagreement about whether a person who had maybe recently moved into a long-term care facility in a different county than where their home was, where we want to stay with their permanent resident, so there needs to be a little bit of those kinds of discussions, and then once we've all decided which county it goes to, so there can be several weeks' delay in um, the addition of numbers, so it's not like three people suddenly died in Boone County, it's that over the last I think it was ten days, there have been another three people who' died
2: yeah, and I mean, really sad to hear that that was in long-term care facilities. I, I, I know that we've talked about it, but I just want to remind everybody that the White House Coronavirus Task Force has explicitly stated that university towns need a comprehensive plan to test all returning students and routinely to surveillance testing um, to identify new cases and outbreaks, and, and that in university towns, they specifically state to ensure all nursing homes assisted living and elderly care sites have full testing capacity in towns with university students so staff can be aggressively tested weekly to prevent spread from students to residents through staff
1: and and from what i can tell that is happening in some facilities and not in others
2: and that is facility based not a county or city-wide plan
1: right And um, so, and the thing is that you'd think, okay, well, so I just want to make sure that my loved one is in a facility where they are doing that. The truth is that many workers in long term care facilities work at more than one facility. Yes. Um, That these are usually um, not greatly paid jobs. And so many people who work these jobs either are working part time and are looking for hours, or they are working two or three jobs. And um, in my experience, I'll tell you that sometimes those people are also providing care in private homes. So they might have, you know, 20 hours a week at a long-term care facility, one long-term care facility and another 10 hours a week in another long-term care facility, and then they do three or four overnight shifts for uh, a person who needs um, individual care at home. Um, And so this is... um, Having a, um, an organized coordinated countywide statewide countrywide plan would be really helpful in protecting our most vulnerable.
2: Yeah, so when I went to the Boone County hub today, there is a big statement that says due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to update the data for 20 um, the 29th and we will remove this page when the data is available right. as we all know and have heard, There is a struggle right now with getting the data from the state to the county. So we don't know how many tests um, that are being conducted that come back negative. We are being informed of our positive cases, but there is a delay in data. And Matthew Holloway pointed out in his post that, um, you know, the state has a new dashboard and they are disclosing less and less information um, than they have in the past, which only becomes more challenging in public health when the data is not public. Right. Um,
1: yep. Um, I'm trying really hard to keep this, um, uh, this show non-political. So I'm just going to just say that. Um, and the other thing is that I am just feeling so much compassion for the public health system. We're overwhelming it. Like we know that, you know, we knew we kind of overwhelmed it when we couldn't get um, timely contact tracing that people were not being contacted by the health department for 6 or 7 days to notify them that they were positive and how to help them stay isolated and also to let them know that they had been the contact of a case. And so I don't know for sure but it just seems like an understaffed um health department and I don't mean understaffed like they're not doing their job. We just gave them a whole lot more work to do by inviting the college students back to town and having a football game.
2: Enough. And And having
1: bars and restaurants open. Yeah.
2: Yeah. For longer. Um, Right. So but the good news is our our case rate is dropping slightly. And so the CPS average cases per 10,000 and over a 14 day period is now at 40.9. And as we know, that 50 is the magic mark to potentially get our kids back into a two day hybrid. As we bring people back together, we know case rates increase. And so I the Columbia Public School has announced that they will be phasing in with kindergarten and second graders starting f- first. I have not heard, and I don't think that it's public, but if somebody else knows um, when that's going to happen. But it, I, I am excited to have David Seaman will be on the show next week to talk about um, the public school and the plan for phase in. So, um, right, and I don't teams, know what happens to
1: them if we can't get data to them.
2: Right. And, and for listeners who might not know, David is on the Columbia Public School Board. And so oftentimes we think of um, the school being the first place to go to um, get our kids back in school. Um, but there's definitely policies that we know are put in place that change that. Um, one issue that I really want to talk about being personally a single mom um, is that Right now, new research has come out, um, and there was an article in Pew, and um, I have sent Mallory, the um, center f- to post on our Facebook page, the Center for American Progress, came out with a report um, that's showing that mothers are significantly more likely to have job loss during this pandemic, so three times more likely to lose their job than fathers. Um, We know that women were already um, extremely burdened in the state of Missouri as far as um, income inequality within our state and even in the county. Um, So Missouri ranks 30th in the nation on our wage gap um, of 21 percent. And then even in Boone County, we rank 15th among the Missouri counties on wage gap with a 15.6% wage gap among women versus men. And so there's a lot of contributing factors that already had women at a significant disadvantage for our state to have a really weak protection policy um, in place. And then we look at what's happening with COVID. And women are actually now the majority of the labor force for the first time in decades. So in, in December of 2019, we were a majority of the labor force. And the 80% 80% of single-family households were headed by women. Um, so there are policies that we are lacking in our country. And, and Peter, when we first hopped on, you said, you know, you, you have a European perspective. So feel free to join us in this conversation. But we know that the CARES Act provided some protection for sick pay and for caregiver leave. But that exempted any business over 500 employees. And that women oftentimes have those positions that are um, less likely to have insurance coverage. They have a higher burden of doing the domestic work. And, you know, right now, 60% of women or mothers are the sole breadwinner or co-breadwinner in the household. So,
1: Elizabeth, right. this, you source. know, I think many of us who, are, who think about American families as uh, two adults in the household with uh, the children that are the product of, you know, that they are the biological parents of. We just need to realize that that is not um, the most common um, household uh, uh, arrangement. And that many of these mothers who are losing their employment do not receive supplemental income from another parent or um, or from another income that's coming into the household. So, um, you know, even when, you know, more and more uh, when when a couples divorce or separate, um, there is less and less, at least it seems to me, and I don't know what the statistics are, it just seems that there is less of an idea that, oh, the one parent is sharing their um, wealth with the other parent.
2: Yeah. And then when we look at the child care system, you know, the United States is a country that we do not have action on... Um, federal guidance or regulations that would help finance the child care system in our country. And we see child care as a individual responsibility, that it's, it's um, personally a failure and especially on the part of a working mother if they don't have access to affordable child care. And, you know, this is really a a more structural economic problem for policymakers that we really haven't gone far enough in our country. To, um to to fix and that it has been exacerbated during this pandemic and so more and more um families and especially women are bearing the burden of of taking care of the children to do schooling to do child care during the pandemic and and again as we said you know to the tune of, of of three times more likely to have to step down from their job or lose their job to take care of their um their children.
1: Um. Right, and and it has just been complicated and exacerbated by the fact that we're, you know, we're all trying to not gather together as much, and we're trying to really protect our vulnerable elders. So, you know, grandmas and grandpas and aunties and such who previously might have been able to step forward and provide childcare, some of them are either, you know, some of them have died, some of them are sick. And some of them are concerned about getting sick, and their families are concerned about sickening them. So um, families are just really way more isolated, and um, it just, um, yeah, it's a concern. I have some uh, families in my circle where the, the female parent is uh, self-employed, and um, their businesses have failed because, not because they didn't have work, but because they don't have a place for their children to be. I mean, they do have a place for their children to be. It's at home because they're doing virtual learning, and that is something that's really hard to outsource.
2: So there are policies that we can put in place, even at a local level here in, you know, Bowen County, Columbia, um, that would help to prevent this um, disparity, and you know, especially when it comes to wage inequality and and um, sick leave protecting um, paid family leave, those policies have been implemented at both a state and a local level, um, po- policies that prohibit workers from discussing pay, policies that say that you won't ask the the um, employee's past salary history, making salaries public information and public knowledge are all things that have been adopted at a local level. Um, communities like New York, um, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, New Orleans, they have policies at a local level to prevent the gender gap. We, we often say, well, the state needs to take care of this. And and oh, yes, in Missouri, the state does need to take care of it if, if you look at our ranking. But we as a local community can take care of it as well. And it takes action and voices. And sometimes the voices of um, other business and economic interests are heard louder than the voices, I think, of of mothers and women. You know, right sure. now the bar owners are being very vocal about um, if we close bars or reduce hours of bars, it's going to impact them. And I'm pretty confident that our elected officials in the city will tell you that they have heard directly from the bar owners.
1: And if bar owners call our elected officials, I'm going to guess that, that, is, that they take the call and that it's an ongoing conversation. This is not the first time they've talked to them. And bar owners have their bars open, and that is encouraging community spread, and it is in contradiction to the White House Task Force recommendation. And in my opinion, it is a major reason why we don't have schools open. So we have women losing their businesses so bars don't lose their income. And it's just one of the costs of us not having in person school right, so and Jenny does the other thing is that, as we've talked about when we go when we get that number below fifty and we can go to hybrid, that means the children the students are in school for two days a week, and the other five days a week, there is very limited programming for them
2: and I recently heard from an elementary school mother, and you know. This needs to be verified definitely with our um, our elected um, decision makers and with the Columbia Public School System. But I heard that once we go to hybrid, um, you know, the two days a week we'll have kids in school, um, then the other two days a week where they're having school. Because remember, we're not having classes on Wednesdays right now. Um, then they will be self-learning. That right now we have four-day a week interaction with. Um, the teachers via Zoom, but once the kids are in school, half of them will be interacting with the teacher, and the other half will be self-paced learning virtually, um, because the teachers might not be able to zoom in at the same time as they're providing right. the in-class yeah. structure. Mm-hmm. So, losing, and there are some
1: there are some educational um, impacts of having much smaller classes and and at a less frequent level that yeah. I think we could debate, but I think that the impact of that meaning that um, that the if you are doing self-paced learning and you are a, a fairly small child, young child, that means you need an adult to be helping guide you. Because it's one thing to expect an 18-year-old to do self-paced learning, and it's a very different thing to expect a 5-year-old to do that.
2: Okay, so Elizabeth, I've been hearing yeah. a lot about herd immunity <laughs> and that we're getting right. that why why couldn't we just get close to herd immunity as it was two things I want to talk about before the end of the hour and we've got yeah. a little bit of time. Vaccines and herd immunity. So which one first? Right. Yeah
1: well let's talk about herd immunity first because honestly my vaccine stuff is rusty. But so <clears throat> the what we yeah. The concept of herd immunity is what we've noticed is that as a new disease moves through a population of humans or animals, I um, guess, or plants, um, that <clears throat> that there's first a rapid rise um, in the uh, case numbers, and then eventually, after a while, there's a fall in number of case numbers if you do nothing. And um, the the thought is that if you have a situation where the interaction between the individuals is random. That is, any one individual is as likely to interact with any other person as, a, as someone else, which is not the way humans do, and it's really not the way other animals do either. Um, but if you have that, then statistically there's a formula based on the infectious behavior of the disease That gives you an idea about how much, how many people, how many individuals need to have had the disease and developed immunity before we'll notice that the spread really diminishes, and that even all the so that then all the people who have not had it are significantly affected and protected by the people who have had it. And the concept is sort of like if we were all playing a game where um, we were throwing tennis balls at each other, and every time. somebody threw a tennis ball at you, you threw it back really quickly. You'd have a lot of tennis balls flying in the air. But if what you did was a certain percentage of the people that whenever the tennis ball came to them, they would just hold onto it and wouldn't throw it back. And what you'd see is that very quickly there'd be fewer tennis balls flying around the room. So that is kind of what's happening Mm -hmm. is that once people are immune, they don't spread the disease anymore. And um, so... That we've been saying that we needed 70% or so for this disease, for COVID-19, um, to see a significant decrease. But the truth is that even you know, the ve- at the very beginning, you're going to start to see a dampening of spread. That it's not going to spread very quickly. So any immunity is helpful. But if what we really want is to feel like, oh, that our you know vulnerable folks in nursing homes are safe and we don't have to be testing the staff and the residents every week, um, that we were going to need to get to some significantly higher than just 1% or 2%. And so that, and, and then it's like the question is, okay, how do we know who's had it? Well, we know mm-hmm. that we're not diagnosing everybody. Um, the, when we've gone through and done population-based antibody studies to see how many people have antibodies, we're coming up with about 10%. And what we know is that about 10% of them were diagnosed. So about 10% of the population in the United States appears to have protective antibodies, and about 10% of those had been diagnosed by the nasal swab and been told that they had it at the time. So most people who are immune don't know it or weren't officially diagnosed with, um, with SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus in their noses. And this was affirmed by a pretty ingenious study. They decided that they would test the uh, blood that's left over after someone goes through hemodialysis. So people with kidney failure go into either in their own homes or they go to a center and they have um, their blood basically scrubbed clean by a machine. And what that means is that they are already having a needle stuck into a vein or a port. And the... Um, and then on a regular basis, once a week or once a month, they have a panel of blood uh, uh, tested, tests done. And so that means some of that blood that that goes through the machine gets put into um, vials and sent to a lab. And usually, I think anybody who's had blood drawn knows that they often draw a lot of blood from an adult and they often draw tiny amounts from a child. And so what that means is that adults who get blood drawn, often there's extra blood in the lab that gets discarded. And they said, oh, what if we tested that blood for antibodies? And so some really smart people looked at, well, who is on hemodialysis? Well, it turns out that the people on hemodialysis tend to be a little bit older than the American population. And um uh, people who live in resource-poor areas who actually experience poverty, and people who are uh, black or Hispanic or other wise persons of color are more likely to experience uh, renal failure and need hemodialysis, which is a injustice in its own self. So we are harnessing this injustice to test another injustice, which is uh, very warped, but I'm not sure what's the right thing to do there. And so they... This would be a population of people where you could do the test without having extra risk to the person, um, not requiring extra cost or difficulty in actually getting people in. You get to see people who might otherwise have limited access to health care and people who are vulnerable in their own way. And they confirmed, so they were able to do a nationwide study of 28,000 people in July. And what they do- noted was that there's regional variations and state variations and county variations, but in general about 9% of people in the United States um, who are undergoing dialysis have um, antibody, positive antibodies to SARS-CoV-2. That um, is good news. It is good news. However, 10% is not 70%. No, nope, it is even not. In,
2: we have a long way to go. And even if we in think 200,000 people have died so far, and we might have is, a 10% immunity right?
1: Right. And so if Uh, we need to get to 70%, we need to have made perhaps perhaps need seven times that many people to die to get to herd immunity with uh, natural spread of the virus. And then there's the question of like, what about T cells? Okay, so this is complicated. And I am just beginning to read it. And I thought when you sent me those articles, like, oh, great, I'm going to understand T cell immunity finally. (laughs) No, I still do not. Okay. And I... Part of it is I don't understand what many people know, and I think even if I knew all of that, we still don't know. So it appears that some people have T-cells that remember being exposed to a coronavirus in a way that helps the body deal with this coronavirus. And Mm -hmm. so we're calling that T-cell immunity. We aren't sure, and it appears to me that it is not necessarily immunity, but it may be the thing that determines how sick you get. Like you may still get it even if you have T cells, and we think that those T cells are have to do with um, exposure to common cold viruses. Um, so it's possible that somewhere between 10 and 50 percent of the population have this partial immunity from T cells, and so there's a thought that maybe we only get need to get to 10 to 20 percent of people with antibody-mediated immunity.
2: By adding the T cell immunity. Okay, Elizabeth, yeah. we did it yet again. Um, we flew yeah. through another um, episode <laughs> and didn't get through all that we had planned to talk no. about. <laughs> right.
1: So next, next but, the next time you and I don't have a um, a guest and our schedules allow, we'll do a review of vaccinations because I think that there are some fascinating developments in that.
2: Yes, because Johnson and Johnson just came out with the um, fourth um, phase three trial. Um, for a vaccine for COVID-19 announced on September 23rd, they're going to get 60,000 people enrolled. And we know that there is huge disparities in who we're getting enrolled in and how we're testing this. And that has impact on um, research and potential outcomes. So for the next show (laughs) um, (laughs) that we have an opportunity to be together, we will talk about vaccines. Thank you so much for joining us. You're
1: today. so welcome. Okay. Everybody, remember, wash your hands, wear your mask, stay six feet away, take your vitamin D 2000 international units per day and cultivate a cheerful confidence that no matter what happens, you can handle a virus.
0: Thank you very much, ladies. Always a pleasure to listen to both of you discuss matters. And if you happen to miss, and, uh, miss some of this episode of Community Pulse, now is a wonderful time to remind you that you can find the full episode online on our website, on our Facebook feed, and also Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you enjoyed listening to Ginny and Elizabeth and uh, Dr. Alleman, uh talk right there, they also were together on Monday, as Ginny mentioned, at the beginning of the program. We thank both Dr. Alleman and Ginny Chadwick. Uh, Important to emphasize that they are both volunteers who give their time to this listener-supported and volunteer-operated community radio station. So thank you very kindly, ladies, for more time. And thank you... The listener for tuning in to KOPN, Mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, and music of the world. Your listener-supported and volunteer-operated community radio station. Coming up next, it is 51%. We will speak to you again live from the KOPN downtown studios with engineer Mallory Daly on Monday at 9 a.m. Until then, enjoy your weekend. Do stay safe. Do stay informed. And don't forget about that cheerful confidence that Dr. Alleman always alludes to. See you on Monday, Columbia.